0: Hi friends, I'm Andy Green, and this week we're talking about a healthier masculinity and a dearth of male role models, because this is the Naked Man Podcast. Last year, shortly after I started this podcast, a college friend of mine called and reached out. She was so supportive and has been since I met her, and by the end of our conversation, she told me about a book she was reading Better Boys, Better Men. As a new parent to a young boy in today's world, she was scared for her son. She knew society had failed us boys too, and wanted something different for her boy. This lead she gave me led to today's conversation with Andrew Reiner, the author of Better Boys, Better Men. Andrew is a father a husband, a family man, a teacher, writer, and researcher dedicated to redefining and creating a new, healthier masculinity. When I initially followed my friend's lead on Instagram, Andrew reached out to me to be interviewed for one of his pieces. I'm not sure, but I got the sense he thought I was much younger than I actually am and didn't realize I was working in a similar space. So instead, he's become a constant supporter of mine, and I hope I provided some support in the other direction. What strikes me about Andrew is that he has taken it upon himself to be a role model of a new, more vulnerable masculinity. This responsibility is something we both take seriously, and it is what brings us to today's conversation. I've been lucky to have many wonderful men in my family, but there are many things I didn't want to talk to my dad or my uncles about, especially when I was growing up. I don't even think I allowed myself to hope or long for a mentor in the academic world and then in the professional arena, but I've always been disappointed let down when I thought I had found someone. It's little wonder so many boys lose their way when there's so few decent adult male role models to look at, especially as pop culture reflected reinforced toxic masculinity and two-dimensional stereotypes about men. It's not an accident that all the therapists I've ever had and my decision coach are all women. I'm grateful to be able to connect with all sorts of people, but even now, even on this podcast ostensibly about men, I'm more comfortable being vulnerable with women which is exactly why I'm here today to talk to Andrew, to practice vulnerability, discuss masculinity, and wonder after the lack of male role models. Andrew, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say, that was an absolutely beautiful intro. Um, It really was. I, I shouldn't be surprised because so much of what you post, in addition to being fantastically creative and silly, which I love, is often, is often extremely, as you said, vulnerable and incredibly thoughtful. And I, you know, and so I shouldn't be surprised really by how thoughtful and, and compelling and vulnerable your opening was because, um, you model that so much in your, you know, so much what I, when I see, you know, what I see of yours on Instagram. So, um, so thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: Yeah. And well, you're welcome. And thank you for that. I, I am uh, working on taking compliments and taking uh, appreciation and being like, yeah. And, uh, Good. and I feel like I get that same vibe from you in terms of your thoughtfulness and also the support on whenever I am uh, vulnerable. Because... I mean, I've talked a lot about this where it sort of feels like we're just sending stuff out into the void, and it's really nice when someone sort of catches it and sees it and notices it. And so it's nice to both be noticed uh, as we start. And I guess, yeah, how are you feeling in this moment? I wanted to reference something that was in your book. Uh, It's like a a Pies check-in. Maybe you can actually give a little bit more of a a background on it. Uh, So what what is Pies? Uh, And it's sort of the same thing as how are you feeling basically, but yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, the, the pies is an acronym and I'll see if I can remember all of it, but it's, it's your states at any given moment, your physical state, your, you know, your intellectual state, your emotional state, um, your spiritual state, we covered all, all four of them, all pies. Okay. And so this is a common thing that is used a lot, for instance, in a lot of men's groups, And it's a great way to start off conversations amongst men when, or boys, when you're going to, when you're going to try to do some deep diving and you're going to have to get real. And, and it's a way that you really kind of hold each other accountable to really be honest about the states, the states that you're in and, and to elaborate when necessary, you know, not to just say, Oh, like physical state, I'm just doing fine. No, 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 no. You need, you need to be a little more specific than that. You know, spiritual state. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm good. No, 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 no. You need, you need to, you know, you need to dig a little deeper here or, you know, where are you spiritually? And so that's what the pies is all about. And it's something that, um, you know, that I would, there's parts of it I would tweak a little bit, but I think I think the overall idea is just fantastic. You know, it's a way, it's right. It's a way of giving, getting everybody into the space and place that they need to be in to start sharing. Uh,
0: Absolutely. And I know for me, like my pie is very, uh, imbalanced. Uh, you know, I think I'm always in the intellectual realm, even when it feels like I'm being emotional and vulnerable. Sometimes it's just like the thinking writer brain is always in control. So this will be hard for me. Do you want me to start? Do you want to start? How
1: about if, how about if I start, would it be easier to do it?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, so physically, um, physically I'm in a pretty good place, not where I'd really like to be. Um, I do a lot of exercise, but, um, man, I just, I don't know, you know, I just, uh, I'm just kind of getting out of a, out of a, a kind of rough period for a couple of months where, um, I don't know if, if I've got some kind of autoimmune thing going on, but, you know, lots of, I've had chronic brain fog for a long time. So I'm fighting that, um, and lots of fatigue. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think I've, I've developed, you know, some, some, a little bit of depression. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not horrible, but, yeah. um, but that's an honest kind of overview of what I'm, tr- what I'm like slowly coming out of. So I'm, I'm grateful that I'm, transitioning out of that, but it's, it's been a bit of a rough patch. Um, you know, in terms of my headspace, the intellectual, um, doing okay, doing pretty good, you know, feeling better now that the the brain fog isn't mm-hmm. as overwhelming as it was, right? Um, emotionally, uh, doing okay, doing a little, you know, a little bit better. Um, it's been a, it's been a, a rough, rough year and, uh, definitely feeling uh the the kind of ripple effects of uh of some trauma uh lots of uh grieving uh with a lot of stuff that I had to deal with with a friend that I was taking care of um and spiritually I'm I'm, you know I'm, I'm doing pretty well um I'm uh I'm feeling definitely feeling a little bit stronger than I was definitely feeling a little bit a little bit stronger and uh Working with a new therapist, which I'm excited about, and uh, just um, working on things like with just day-to-day stress management. And, uh, you know, that that affects our spiritual lives so much. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm excited to be to kind of working on that stuff. And, and let me just say this about the pies, too. Yeah. You know, everybody doesn't come at the same place. You know, everybody, right? Everybody's kind of, you know, vibrating, resonating. Um at a different place in terms of what they feel comfortable divulging. So so the important thing, Andy, is when you do this, you know, you're honest, but you you don't go, you know, you don't go to a place, you wanna challenge yourself, but you don't have to go to a place that feels like you're way out of your wheelhouse.
0: Right. Be uncomfortable, uh, necessarily, or, or even maybe performative. Sometimes it sort of feels like I need to make a leap, um, just to just, uh, well, and I wanted to, before I jump into mine, I wanted to sort of validate and see yours and how that was really expertly modeled and, and also like, thanks. So. and, you know, sorry to hear about some of those things, uh, like, I mean, all of the things, but also like, it's, I'm glad that you're, it seems like you're coming out of the fog. And into the spring or summer, wherever we are at. What, I don't know. I guess on your side, it's not that. I don't know what the weather is. So. I don't know
1: what the hell. I don't know what the hell. You know, it's just it's just scary. It's just scary. But, but thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see. So physically, well, I actually, I'm going to say what is on my intellectual brain right now first, because it's... Uh, there's people blowing leaves outside and that is distracting me and annoying me. Uh, and so that, I mean, maybe that's an emotional thing too. Uh, just like it's taking me out of it. And I'm also like worried about the sound. So like that's, that's happening in parts of my, my brain right now. Um, physically I, I mentioned before we started that I was sort of tired. I stayed up late, uh, with a friend who's, who's going through a, a breakup and we cleansed her apartment. We tried to like, uh, you know, bang some bells together and and, and uh, lit some uh, charcoal. And, and I mean, I don't know, we had fun with it. You know, I dressed up in a robe and just like, Let's. Uh, but, you know, that also involved wine and maybe a little bit more than it needed to. So like, I'm feeling that and I sort of forget how little I, I drink that, will I f- I, I f- that I'll feel now uh, as I'm older. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I woke up a little bit earlier than I wanted to. So yeah, and I I feel stiff and and sort of longing to, really excited for a hike after this, I think, to just sort of let that out. And then, yeah, so intellectually, I mean, I could spin myself into circles intellectually all the time. Uh. (laughs) I I, I feel like though I'm getting, my brain is as good at doing what it is that I do, (laughs) and, and every day it seems to be like I'm getting a little bit better at focusing and I'm sort of... Well, I'm always carrying 12 different things at once. And I'm sort of right now learning to, I mean, shave it down to five, you know, and, and trying to make blocks of time that is dedicated to just one thing rather than, you know, literally the 12 different windows of 12 different projects and adding them as they come. Cause that's kind of how my brain works. Yeah. And the, uh, the leaf blower is back, uh, as we get into emotional, um, I think, Emotional, I would say I'm sort of overwhelmed in some way because I've just, as I've been doing this podcast and as I've been becoming more open and vulnerable, I just keep connecting with people and that, and I love it. And in a way, that's all I care about, but it's also. I've been, I've been reading about, uh, you know, sort of boundaries and I have porous boundaries. I let people in and I give myself also, and that, that takes a lot out of me, but also it's, it's so rewarding, but I, it does, it, it takes sort of a a toll sometimes. And also it feels like a responsibility of like, oh, I have to be up. I have to, you know, I have to be uh, this person that I'm becoming all the time. And that takes work, um, I uh, and I will also say it's been a year and change since a dear friend died, and that I've I don't often sort of give myself the space and time. And like when you mentioned the grieving, that's where my head went to. And I was just like, I mean, I've talked about Chris uh, several times on this show, and just sort of he's sort of just always with me, but I don't I don't, I don't allow myself necessarily to sort of uh, I mean, the word that came to mind that is a, sh- a shaming word is like wallow in it, and it's like no. I think that's that would be nice to to sort of be in his memory. So uh, maybe I'll watch some X Men cartoons and uh, and get there this weekend. Um, and that kind of connects to spiritual, I think, too, in terms of like just uh, connecting with someone who's no longer here. And yeah, I think spiritually, I've been doing a lot more. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm I'm more intellectual than my body and spirit, and I've I did a manifestation walk recently that I'm going to talk about on this show, and I'm sort of trying to manifest who I want to be and get rid of some of these blocks. And I also did a tarot reading that, again, that's our that was our previous episode. It's not actually out as I say this, but it's our previous episode. And I just like I'm exploring with that. I met a friend who's Buddhist, and I'm really excited to sort of follow just all those things. Just like anything else, uh, I'm just a kid collecting baseball cards and each one is like a different. Now it's like spiritual themed. Um, so I think that's where I'm at. Uh how did I do?
1: <laughs> you did great. You thank you for sharing all that. No, really, I mean it's you know, you covered all the bases. Thank you for your honesty. Above all else. You know, it's and I know this sounds really kind of cliche to say something like this, but you know, there is no bad way to do it. It right. really isn't. There isn't. It really isn't. You know, and 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 that it sounds obvious, but a lot of people don't really internalize that. One of the things you learn, you know, on the path is that you, you we have to distance ourselves. And especially in a perfectionist culture like ours, we have to really work hard to distance ourselves from those inner voices we internalize of shame. Yes. You know, you're not doing it well enough. You know, forget even perfect. I mean, God knows that's bad enough, but it's always, am I doing this the right way? Am I doing this the right way? Am I doing this the right way? Because we're always comparing ourselves. And when it comes to something like this, you know, that's why I was saying before, it's it really takes practice to get to the point where you're meeting yourself where you are. It's not about anybody else in the room, man. It can't be. Yeah. Don't worry about them. Let, let them stay in their lanes. You've got to stay in your lane and you've got to meet yourself where you are. And that is a hard thing to do in a culture like ours. We don't, most people don't meet themselves where they are. And it's really important to learn to be in that space and to just keep telling yourself in your mind, this is okay. What I'm saying is okay. I'm not gonna respond in ways that I think other people want me to respond, Mm -hmm. that they wanna hear. You're getting out of your lane when you do that. So, So seriously, whatever you bring to it, Andy, that's where you are that's enough.
0: <laughs> thank, thank you. And, and I, I totally agree. Cause I, I even, even in what I was doing, I fought off some of those voices of like, Oh shit, Andrew's bringing it. All right. I gotta, I gotta be, you know, I, I know, right. It's like, eh, that's not useful. <laughs> and, and even when I was talking about the manifestation walk during the first half of that, I was like, Am I doing this right? What am Is what am I supposed to do? Like, I want this to be good. and then then I, I just had to just step and take another step and just forget it and then and then it happens, and it's sort of like writing. If I'm forcing it, nothing comes. If I allow myself to lay down and and close my eyes, then all of a sudden, words start to appear. And I forget that every single time. I know. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's. I mean, I think we're already in the space now. I, uh, it feels like we're both jiving. I don't know. Um, and I was just. I wanted to talk about the the male mentors and role model thing, and that sort of. That's sort of how I reached out to you in terms of like maybe a theme or container for this. And I was just wondering if you had any male mentors growing up or if you have any now or what your experience was like of that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you know, I was thinking about that, you know, I was, I was thinking about mentors in my past and man, I mean, first of all, you know, I was thinking a lot about, about that, um, about this idea of mentors and, you know, who has kind of been there for me. And I'm one of these people. And I think it was, to be honest, I just think it's just a lesson I was supposed to learn, you know, that for better or for worse, I just, I haven't been one of these people that anyone's really taken me under their wing, you know? And I, and I have to tell you, I say that, uh, you know, with with a good degree of sorrow, because who the hell doesn't want to be taken under somebody's wing? My God, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, who the hell doesn't want somebody to care enough to say, you matter enough that I that I think you've got something and I wanna I want to help you? And and I'm just you know being really honest, you know, that just it hasn't happened for me as, as I think back. Um, I mean, really the only person in my life, I think, for the longest time, who really made me serve that role in, in any partial degree was my dad. Um, and that was a very conflicted relationship. Because my dad, um, without knowing or being self-aware enough to know, was a, was a very damaging person to other people. And, and he, as damaging as he was, he also was showed me a type of love and affection at times when he was able to, which wasn't you know, that often, but it was the kind that I needed, the kind that I resonated to, a kind of real loving nurturing way that I'm I'm with my son all the time this way because this is what I wanted and this is what he's very much like me I'm not forcing it on him but he's a very very sensitive thoughtful little guy and so my father was really growing up the only person who really you know ever showed me really that kind of attention um or or really modeled for me uh a way of being in that one way that that I really resonated to. You know, I mean, really in my life, it's been a matter of, and I think this is true for you know for a lot of people, um, and I think it's probably even more true now for boys, where it was a matter of looking at people and looking at qualities that I admire. Um, for me, even though I played sports my whole life, I've played them my whole life and growing up, I was playing them all the time. I wasn't one of these boys that was looking at a lot of the athletes and saying, I want to be like him. Because, because there wasn't a lot about these athletes that I saw that I really glommed onto, you know? That wasn't really where. Um, it's funny, Andy, I was, you know, as I was thinking about this, I think in some ways, I have more, I have more role models as I've gotten older than I did when I was younger. Mm. And again, not for lack of want, but it just they just weren't you know they weren't coming to me. Um, and so, I think that you know there are there are there are certain men uh, that, that I look to and, and I see certain things that they model that I really respond to. You know, I respond to Barack Obama's. Um, compassionate intelligence. You know, he, he is always, he's extremely contextual, which I love. He's extremely thoughtful, which I love. He's extremely compassionate and empathetic, which I love. He brings all of those things to the type of intelligence. Um, and, and I think I respond to that more because that's, you know, I, 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 that's that's the type of intelligence that I try to practice, but I respond mm-hmm. to that. But I, but I think he really takes it to a very high level and I, and I really admire that. Um, I, one of the things, um, I really admire are people who, um, really have stepped up and been really open about their struggles with mental illness. And w- somebody who always comes to the top of the heap for me with that is Bruce Springsteen, because Bruce Springsteen, even though you could say, well, he's got nothing to lose because of the incredible status and, and power that a guy like that has, um, He also, you know, he's also old school, you know, he grew up in that baby boomer generation. And so he didn't have to come out and lay it down and just really be painfully honest in all the interviews he's done, which he has. He didn't have to be that painfully honest. There are enough younger men doing that, that he didn't have to come forth. And that's why in some ways I, I revere him even more for doing it because it wasn't something that, you know, People of his generation didn't grow up talking like that. They don't talk about it now. Right. You know, when when you look at most of the people talking about it, it's much younger people. And I think it took a lot more, even in some ways, even more courage for him, because it's not like he's surrounded by a lot of peers who are saying, hey, man, way to go right on. You know, they're saying, hey, great, Bruce, that's great. You know, thanks for setting the tone. And they admire him for it. But it's not like he's got a, a lot of peers surrounding him. You know who who you know who who are kind of saying you know yeah we're behind you on this and you know we're we're doing the same thing it's it there's not there's not that kind of commiseration for older guys so in some ways I admire him even more for kind of breaking that barrier because I think what he has done is that he has kind of uh, sanctioned it for a lot of older men that I really wouldn't be surprised if if him coming out the way that he has about mental health issues hasn't really kind of made some openings and and made a few more men more courageous to seek it out for themselves.
0: I was just going to say he's a very interesting figure, a masculine figure in terms of where he lands and sort of his blue collar sort of thing that he's also fighting against in in terms of America and other things. But also, yeah, I think. You know, it it doesn't feel performative, like you said, because there's no reason. Like, he's not doing it for his brand. It's actually, you know, if anything, maybe against brand or something and, and like whatever that means. So it does feel like he didn't have to do that at all, like you said. So that's pretty admirable.
1: Yeah, he really, he really, he did not have to do that. And I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, which I'm willing to go down that rabbit hole another time. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the things I've always fought against my whole life, you know, it's, it's been a tension is the idea of like trying to be cool. Yes. This guy has like no cool cachet whatsoever, Mr. Rogers.
0: Oh, yes.
1: But, but the reason I always, I shouldn't say always as an adult, I've come to love Mr. Rogers um, is because. When I talk about, you know, like for instance, staying in your lane, I was talking earlier about, you know, not comparing yourself. I can't think of anybody, you know, who is probably more reflexively authentic than Fred Rogers was. And his message was just so universally pure and and had so much integrity consistently. You know, he walked the talk all the time. And he and he was. You know, he knew he knew how a lot of people thought about him and laughed at him and, and thought that, you know, this guy is just so square and uncool, you know? And he dealt with that, you know, throughout his, you know, his, his life as, as, you know, with his show. But man, the guy had integrity in spades. He was coming of age in an era with TV in the late 60s and throughout the 70s where the values were shifting very much. And the whole cool factor was becoming a much bigger thing um, beginning in like the late 60s and 70s. And it's just really kind of amped up progressively throughout the decades since then. And I bring all that up because he never, ever kowtowed or played into any of that because he he came from a place of knowing exactly who he was and what he was about. And And as I've gotten older, I just love the hell out of him for his integrity with, with never, ever swerving out of his lane with compassion and empathy and kindness, never. And it just, it would have been so easy to just kind of, you know, say, okay, well, in the eighties and the nineties, kids are getting more edgy, you know, irony is a much bigger thing and I need to reach out to them. And he was aware of that, but he thought that's not really what's serving kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are the reasons I've just, as I've gotten older, I appreciate a guy like that more and more because I think his integrity was just completely and utterly just, you know, impenetrable. So those are three guys that that came to mind.
0: I, I love all three of those examples. And Mr. Rogers especially is one that I think about a lot in regards to this show. And like the, when, when I was sort of, before I was even working on this or knew what I was doing, I would be watching interview shows and and watching. So like Letterman, I mean, actually comedians in cars getting coffee is when I watched a lot, like with Jerry, uh, while, while working on a day job, I didn't care about. And I just had this on and sort of, oh, and also James Lipton inside the actor's studio. That was another one. Mr. Rogers to me was like, I mean, I loved him as a kid. And then I was too cool for him, you know, as a, as a teenager and beyond. And then it wasn't really until the last 10 years of sort of been like, Oh, he is, is one of my heroes. And he is so himself as what you're saying. And, and so welcoming and such a benevolent presence and, and that, yeah, he has to fight off or, or he didn't fight off, but there's so many people that sort of just see him as weird, not even just square, but like, weird and even maybe like a pedophile, right? Like that's like, and it's just, because we're so threatened by a man who could be so vulnerable and care about children. And that to me is, that's a really hard space to be in. And he was there the whole time. Um, and, and so, and I, he had a, he had a show I never watched that was sort of, well, I watched one episode because I could only find one where he actually did an adult interview show. Um, I forget what it's called old friends, new friends, it it was in his doc, in the documentary that came out. And I sort of made a mental note of that. And and in my head, it was sort of like, we need uh, a, like adults need those conversations too. Cause like every time an interview show happens, it's about a product. It's about my movie that's coming out. and, And yeah, we, we talked about your book, but like, that's not that, that wasn't my motivation, or I don't think your motivation maybe for being on here was like we're selling copies of the book. It's more like I want to have a real conversation with you. That that book was sort of our our lifeline. Um, and to me that that's important. And, and I I got that, I think, from Mr. Rogers too.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny, you know, you mentioned a guy like David Letterman. He's somebody who I always thought was really funny, but David Letterman really kind of became he was really kind of leading the pack with, with kind of the, the transition into a, uh, a kind of really edgy, ironic comedy. Right. And which was fantastic, but he could also take it too, you know, too far sometimes with some of his guests. Um, and so now he's this elder statesman and, and, you know, a couple of years, I'd say probably within the last five years of his show, he really kind of took on a role that, that I really appreciated more. You know, I really did because he was still mixing in comedy, though not as much. But you could you could tell that here's a guy who who's been challenged by life. Yeah. And you could tell that that he was he was really a hell of a lot more humble, a hell of a lot more thoughtful and a hell of a lot more empathetic. And I thought this is this is the kind of combination that's really good.
0: And when I brought it up to you, I felt like in some way I was like, Andrew, be my mentor. And then I was like, that's not exactly how I meant it. But it was also just like, wh- why is that question feel like it, it It feels really scary to to bring that up? And also because in my life, I well, A, I don't think it's necessarily like I don't get to choose that, right? Or it's like it's not necessarily – I feel like, uh, well, it's a lot of responsibility for a person to be like, oh, I, I have to I have to help this person or this person's looking to me, which I mean, I think you're already carrying yourself like that anyway. Like that's part of, I think, who you are, like you want boys to see you and and, and as you're working through your stuff, you know, and I think I'm doing the same thing, too, without necessarily. Well, I guess I, did, I didn't I don't know if I realized it until I wrote that intro of like, oh, like, I guess I'm doing the same thing. Um,
1: um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, yeah. And, and I, if I could just say real quickly, yeah, you know, I'm not just to be really clear, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you talked about, you know, you use the word performative. I'm not trying to be something for anybody because I'm trying to build my brand. That's, that's not what I'm about. What I think is so important is that you walk the talk, whoever, whoever you are. And, and for me, if I'm going to lean into this whole thing about healthy masculinity, I damn well better walk the talk. And, 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 and to me, it's been my journey has been the word I always come back to is, is liberation. Mm. The more that I become the person and the man that I always kind of was felt like I, I kind of wanted to be, the more I feel and I don't use this word lightly emancipated. Because because I have learned so much by freeing myself from all these expectations, how incredibly just, to keep that metaphor going, how shackling it is to have to be a man. And And all that means, because so many guys aren't even aware of the deep repercussions of what that means. And once they start realizing it, they just realize how incredibly limiting it is. All these expectations that we need to, you know, even those of us, you know, even those of us who, you know, push back against certain elements of traditional masculinity, there's other things beneath that, that are just expectations that a lot of people put on us, not just other guys. Oh yeah. There are a lot of, lot of women that, that, that that unwittingly put it on us as well. But when I became, started to become aware of that, I thought, I want other guys who are at least a little bit aware of this. You know I just I want to walk the talk to let them know that it's possible. you can do it, and you don't have to be beholden to this if you don't want to be so that's really where for me, you know that that's where I'm coming from
0: and and i I think it I mean it bleeds through in everything you say and that yeah, you're not it's not there's not a brand that's not a um and that's so refreshing and and also just nice uh, and uh, well, yeah and and I think in terms of i mean. We might take our whole conversation just talking about the mentors, but I just, you know, like I've, I really have only, I don't think I've ever actively sought it similar to you where, or, or I think it's only after now where I'm just like, oh, that would have been really, really nice and helpful to have had someone that sort of, um, was similar to me or wanted to do the same things as me. And, you know, I had sort of professors that I liked in college, but whenever I sort of went beyond student in terms of like asking like, Oh, you know, I, I don't know about this major. Like I want to do this and st-, And like, I'm sort of asking them for help. And they're just like, Oh, I don't know. You know, they sort of like get freaked out. And, and like, because, you know, I'm asking them to like make a decision about my life. And that's not exactly what I meant. But I was, you know, t- 20. Uh, so and and so and I felt that fear of like, Oh, this guy actually wants me to help him. And it was sort of, like, Oh, okay. I guess, I guess I'm just a, a good student and that's it. Okay. Um, or, 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 you know, a boss that I had when moving to LA and, and, you know, the showrunner TV person. And, you know, I think more than anything, I just learned who not to be uh, in that scenario.
1: That's a, that's a good point, Andy. That really is. That is because, you know, th- there's a lot to be said for that. And, and sometimes. You know, sometimes that does have to be the, the the place that we that's a jumping off point is learning who not to be. And that's important. Right. But but at some point, at some point, we do need to, you know, kind of drill down and say, you know, who do I want to be? I mean, I know what I don't want to be. And that is extremely important. We at some point, we also that doesn't create an identity. No, there still is a vacuum. Right. So th- this is this really is an important conversation, by the way. I, yeah, I, you know, I, it really is. But but at some point, it's not enough to just say I know all the things I don't want to be because by default that doesn't mean that we are who we want to be.
0: <laughs> no, there's there's too many don't want still. I, yeah, or or and I have a really I think we all have a much easier time saying what we don't want, and, and even that keeps us from what we do want too because it's like I mean I've had I've had this thought of like you know oh I want a TV show and then after that I'm like. I don't want to work on it for six years. (laughs) And like, that would be, that's the reason I'm not going to have it. That's such a silly thought to have. Like, I would be so fortunate to have that if it ever happened, (laughs) Uh, but it's just like, that's in a nutshell me. But also I think we all sort of, it's so much easier to go, well, yeah, I don't want that job, but like, what do I want or who do I want to be? Uh, And I'm, I'm working on that like specificity is very important and I I tend to be very vague because the more vague I can be uh then I'm not failing
1: that's exactly right and we and and that's one of the problems with the culture we live in of being so uh, we're not just cynical we're hyper cynical you know there, there's you know of course the, there is just it's, it's all a front you know and it's a sanctioned acceptable front which is which is very unfortunate Because when we're all so cynical about the same kinds of things, it really doesn't force us to ever take the leap and to really apply ourselves because we can always say, I could do it if I want to, which, which is just at some point, at some point, you know, we've got to say, look, that's such bullshit. The emperor's not, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. You're not accomplishing anything by endlessly deconstructing everything that you don't like. At some point, you've got to take a stand and say, what am I for? And what direction am I moving in? And and that's, that's what it means to really start to, to, to get on that track and that path, you know, towards, towards really greater self-fulfillment and really having a strong, a stronger identity.
0: That's a, that's an incredible point. I mean, cause I feel like, I mean, I've definitely been on the back and forth of like cynicism in my life. And I, I definitely, it's sort of a reflex too, especially when it comes to just, World events are just like the, you know, trying to be the optimist about the future of things, you know, it's just so easy to be cynical, but that's infectious, you know? And, and then also, yeah, it, it's just me protecting myself or like, oh, what could I do? Or, you know, what, what, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, I, I now, I, I try to challenge that. It still comes out with like, you know, I think business things, you know, whenever money enters uh, my brain, that's when I get cynical. That's with the brand kind of stuff. And there's, um, I mean, cause I've created, you know, defense mechanisms and stuff against that, or just trying to believe, you know, believing people at face value has not always worked out. Um, but now I'm going to back to being like, well, life is so much better if I just trust people and trust myself to be able to see, oh, Andrew's a decent human. We'll have a nice conversation no matter what it is.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's really important too, to, at some point we also have to create boundaries we have we have to create boundaries with the people that we associate with and the social media and all the mediums that we consume we've got to set boundaries when we are constantly having that 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 cynical reflex reinforced constantly you know it's become a social norm you know it's it's sanctioned with fomo i mean you know mm-hmm. we always will will kind of you know default to what the group wants so that we're not on that social bubble and so, you know, at some point, you you really have to create boundaries, so you can get away from that reflexive cynicism, because it's not going to it doesn't serve. There's a there's a cor- another course I teach. This masculinity course is one of them, but there's another one I teach called Leading Lives That Matter. Mm-hmm. And these are the kind of things that we talk about all the time. And I tell students, you know, it's you know, cynicism is only going to take you so far, because really, at the end of the day, it's it's just like being sarcastic. It's like being ironic all the time. It's armor and it's not going to serve you in the long run. It's, it, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a productive, you know, adaptive way of reacting to things all the time. It's only a defense mechanism and you can't, you can't base your future and your life on defense mechanisms. And that's why it's so important to create boundaries and to, and to include in our diet of consumption, being surrounded by people and th- and mediums that we're consuming that that do speak to, you know, that do speak to hope and possibility and, po- and, 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 and this idea of, you know, that there are things that are generative. There are people that are good and, and just, and don't, you know, don't buy into that reflex of endlessly just criticizing and critiquing because maybe their thoughts or the way of approaching the world seems too overly simplistic mm-hmm. because at some point, at some point we've got to surround ourselves and balance our diet of consumption with people and mediums and things that are going to feed into our lives that give it hope and possibility because these are the things these are the things that make that give life purpose and meaning not not that not that the, the hollow shallow shell of just endlessly being cynical and saying oh well, that's too simplistic really so the students who are the most miserable that i teach semester in semester out are the ones who are overly cynical and overly analytical and, and and they're the ones, they're the ones who, you know, and, and they're the ones who they can talk a good game, but they're the most miserable people deep down. And these are not things that are generative, you know, these are not ways of being that are really serving us. All they're doing is, is keeping in the good graces of our friends and the people that we admire who who think and talk the same way. But ultimately, they're dragging us down. You know, this isn't a path forward. And so this idea of cynicism. Can of can of course serve a purpose. You know, it's it's like any kind of reaction to things that are dangerous. But but to have this mindset as our mo is really not a path forward at all. It really stag it stagnates us and it makes us hopeless. And, and then in turn, people get that way and they get socially isolated, emotionally isolated. It's not a coincidence that we're, we're, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, that the spikes amongst younger generations in anxiety and depression were just going through the roof. You know, the pandemic has just made all of it worse, but this, this is not sustainable.
0: Um, I, I mean, I, to- I totally agree and I, I can't help, but be like, well, what is our path forward? And, and I, but I, I think, I mean, it's, it's this, right. It's, it's, uh, it's being honest about how we, how we feel rather than.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I stopped, I realized years ago that I, I had to stop surrounding myself with people that, that were basically echoing who I always was because I realized that that wasn't gonna serve me anymore. And so I couldn't surround myself with just people saying the same thing and thinking the same way because, you know, that, that is really not serving me. And I realized, you know, a couple of years ago that I realized that, the, the, you know, the woman I married, you know, the person I aligned myself with is somebody that I never would have been drawn to, you know, when I was younger, because she is hopeful. She is optimistic. You know, she, she is, she is very, very positive. And she is somebody who, you know, believes in things like the power of, you know, like like affirmations, because this is the way forward. This is the way where there's possibility. That's sustainable. Surrounding ourselves with just endless, just deconstruction and cynicism, it's a fallow field. It really is, you know, and it's and it's not a coincidence that again, This is the kind of stuff that that just it feeds into the anxiety and the depression and the emotional and social isolation.
0: I feel like, in a way, it's almost like there's a self fulfilling nature to it too, and that uh, because I just had this image of of going driving down a dead end. That's what it felt like. That path is like, it feels like we just keep creating dead ends by we're like, oh, this is not going to go anywhere. Oh, this sucks, you know, or this person's whatever. And, And just the act of thinking that, the act of negative. I've actually been sort of trying to work on affirmations and 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 work on believing things and the power of changing my mindset because I've so often created the reality I was afraid of or, or, or and and I think that's in some way what we're doing on a global sense and it it also I think it made me think of the cancel culture too of like that feeds the flames of cynicism if anyone makes like a mistake. It's like, see, I told you this guy's a fucking monster. And it's like, n- no, people make mistakes. And he he's just, he's just the person who's really, really famous. And we can see it. And God, I mean, I'm in mortal terror of all my mistakes. They're they're all out here, and I'm just like, let's go into them because, uh, again, that's like before I even have someone listening. I'm like worried about what they'll, you know, how they'll tear me down because I said, "Uh, <laughs> I
1: know, something. and that's and that's one of the things." And I think you're so right when you, you bring in this discussion about cancel culture because there's no vulnerability there. There is this feeling of, you know, if we are all on the same page and we are all using that lens of constantly looking for ways that we are being wounded and demonized, you're going to find it. You're going to find it. You know, it's like in my case, you know, I've gotten to the point of a fever pitch because of of my book and so much of the articles I've written around the idea of healthy masculinity that, you know, when you're, when you're looking through the lens of a certain thing, you know, so often I'll hear and see things, especially in the post uh, Me Too era, I guess we're still kind of in the, you know, I don't know if we'd say post Me Too, maybe we're still in the Me Too era, but there really there really is, you know, I, I find myself so often just saying, like, wow, this is just really harsh, you know, this is really unfair, this is really ungrounded, the ways and in, in popular media that that a lot of often men are now being talked about and and being just kind of like canceled, or or uh, things that have nothing to do with sexual assault, but just or even just a hint of it, and it's just you know, there's no conversation. There's no context whatsoever. On the one hand, there's that lens of people looking through that and you'll find what you're looking for. If you if you look just a little bit and you want to find people who are offending you and wounding you, you don't have to look hard. They're always going to be there. Oh, yeah. I mean, at what point do you say enough is enough? And for the sake of yourself, you've got to stop being so fucking miserable. And, and you And you've got to start kind of opening your aperture and saying, yes, at the end of the day, there are enough people out there that they will potentially constantly wound me and hurt me, but but so what? When are you going to start really living your life and opening your aperture and engaging and connecting with people who see the world differently than you? Because 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 that's part of our isolation, you know. Part of our isolation and depression comes from, you know, this this fissuring off, you know, this silo effect of only surrounding ourselves with people who who feel as equally hurt, you know, as as vitriolic as we do. And so that's that's not a sustainable way to lead your life. It's the same thing you know, with the cynicism we were talking about, to just really feed off of each other's animus and constantly looking for ways that other people are failing you. That's not a sustainable way to live as a human.
0: It's just sad. Um, and yeah, that, that made me think a lot of politics stuff that I don't necessarily want to get into, but I but I also vulnerability. Right.
1: And that's, that's the thing, you know, and, and to get back to it, cause really, you know, this is your, you know, this is your podcast, the vulnerability. If people would just come from a place of saying, you know what, what you've said, to be honest, really wounds me. It really hurts my feelings deeply and I'm wounded. And I need to have this conversation with you about why, cause I need you to know that it can be really wounding. Mm. You know, It doesn't just piss me off. What's beneath the pain is the fear and the sadness and I want to come from a place of that. That's a place where you can have conversations. That's a place where you can actually make progress. Where there, where there's that kind of emotional honesty, and you're inviting out of curiosity a conversation. That's a place where you can actually start from something and build from there.
0: And it's an open conversation. It's not a. There's not. I mean, there's not judgment. I mean, you're hurt and you're being honest about the hurt and actually. It actually makes me think of, I think probably the most, the thing that resonated with me the most in your book was the story about your childhood friend, Brian. And and, and so this was someone that you, you connected to emotionally in one-on-one scenarios. And then in group settings, he sort of turned on you or like, you know, basically it's that classic scenario where I feel like in group settings, it connects to what you were saying about. To, to me, it always feels like we're always ready to let me see, I'm going to lose the thread here, but uh, I'll rewind back to Brian and and maybe you can give me more of the background. But basically there's a trust thing there. Like you trust each other. He was a sensitive male like you. And then in the, in the group, there's that like, no, Andrew's the, you know, whatever bad word we want to say, a loser, lame, gay, whatever thing is happening to save himself. And to me, that feels like what we're doing whenever we point to someone else, when they're making a mistake. Cause it's just like, Ooh, the lens is on them now. I can be, I can be over here. I'm safe. I know that I've thought of a woman in a bad way, but nobody's thinking about me right now. So successful and fuck you, whoever that is. And to me, that's why group settings to this day scare me because I just, I always would witness it. Whether it was a board game, a sleepover, baseball, it was always a mission to not be the runt or the omega, the absolute omega of the group. It felt like. If I was second to last, that was safe. As long as I wasn't the person at the bottom that everyone was making fun of and it felt like that was we all want to gang up on someone, so we are safe.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And yeah, and and a lot of the examples you gave are I think what goes through a lot of the minds, you know, of and, and that's a, it's always been a very condo- common dynamic for boys and young men especially. You know, it's that idea as you said of as long as I'm not the one you know, that the boom is being lowered on, then that's all I really care about. And so that's, a, you know, what the, I use that example, because that, that example with with my old friend, Brian, you know, we were really good friends when we were both in 10th grade and we'd you know, we we'd do these sleepovers at his house. And he was here. I was, as you as you mentioned, here was another guy who was just as really kind of could be really thoughtful and and curious, you know, about the world and girls, things that we were interested in and just learning about for the first time. We'd have these sleepovers, have these great conversations, and then we'd get out into a group of guys, and it was like a Jekyll and Hyde. You know, Brian was now acting, acting so radically different. It was a 180 from the boy that that I you know I knew, you know, doing the sleepovers. And we get into groups and he would start, you know, kind of ragging on me you know, making me look bad, very common boy, you know, dynamic of it's a status thing. You know, if you're, you know, you're looking better if you're making the other guys laugh at another guy's expense, right? Yes. So there was that whole kind of status, you know, kind of pecking order thing going on. And of course it was also, you know, him laughing if somebody else made a joke or said something that was at somebody else's expense, including mine. Right. You know, and it was that, it was was very much that very... Under, you know, that feeling of this person is a complete traitor. Looking back with the benefit of time and a lot of learning and a lot of introspection, I can see why he behaved the way he did. I didn't, I shouldn't have, I didn't condone it and I shouldn't have condoned it, you know, and I I did, you know, I I did the right thing by distancing myself from him because even at that age, I, I couldn't have maybe explained it this way, but I knew deep down that I didn't wanna surround myself with people who weren't being true to themselves and true to me in turn, because that was something that I did bring to the table. What you saw was what you got, and I was gonna be consistent throughout. I wasn't gonna change because I was gonna be around other people. And by that age, I, even though I couldn't have articulated that, I sensed it deep down. But in the end, what happened in that dynamic you bring up, Andy, is that I was more and more wounded and he became more and more on the attack, which is something that a lot of guys do. You know, often the guys who who are the ones who go in the biggest offensives against other guys are the ones who are trying to get, you know, throw off their, you know, their perceived vulnerability that they're hiding. They want to throw off that whiff of vulnerability in themselves and put it onto somebody else. Right. Right. And of course, so so and that's what he was doing, because I represented for him the possibility of opening a door to a part of him that he did. He didn't want anybody to see. And so, and so by virtue of me doing that, this was a way of him trying to, you know, to cover that over and go on the offensive. And what I ended up doing at the end of that was, uh, you, you bring up that example from the book, and this was not the kind of thing I typically did or said to other boys, because I know how, how wounding it was, but he called me one night on the phone and it was early in the week, I remember. And he was going on and on about some girl that he liked and what should he do and this and that. And this wasn't the way I normally talked at all. About you know about girls, and I didn't say these kind of things to guys. But I said I just said like, "What are you a girl?" And 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 as soon as I said that, I knew this is not what I really believe. But I wanted to I wanted to put the knife in him. <laughs> I, I wanted him, and I said that in the book. I wanted to basically put the dagger in his heart because he had been so awful to me, and and so duplicitous, and and so. He just literally had just completely turned, and so here he was coming to me now, in the in the dynamic of the, of the safe space of one on one, trying to kind of reclaim that safe space and have a friend that he can be intimate with. And I thought, no, 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 I'm done. I'm not having this anymore. What's more is you hurt that you hurt the hell out of me, and I did not have the capacity at that point to say that to him. You really wounded me and hurt me. What I did have the capacity to do was something that sounded fake coming out of my mouth because this wasn't the way I thought about girls. Because even then, I did not think that way about girls. And I didn't do that to guy friends. But that was what I ended up using to really just kind of, you know, to wound him.
0: Yeah, well, and that was also sort of, yeah, that was defending yourself. That was sort of, well, and I think that's actually exactly what we're seeing on a global scale, especially on social media. And because it is... It, it's hurt people hurt people. I mean, that sounds very simple, but it's true. It is true. Our instinct, and it, uh, it happens in arguments with my wife all the time, when we're being present with each other and realizing, oh, the, this this hurt me and how you said that because because of this, instead of just like, wait, why did you do that? You know? And that's, uh, the instinct is to always attack back. And, we can't, and I think especially uh, as a man, it's like, well we can't appear weak we can't we can't let them win it's about winning and losing too there's like a competitive nature of it of like yeah the the more eyes looking at you and the and that goes to all the things we're talking about like about caring about what they think especially men like i that's why i said at the beginning oh i'm much more comfortable being vulnerable with women cuz i I just, I have more experience of that going well,
1: Uh, you know, Oh, absolutely. My God, you know, and that, that really so much of my book is, is really about, you know, is, is for a lot of men, that's been the case for a lot of really thoughtful, sensitive men. My God. I mean, that's been, that's been my life experience too. You know, I mean, whenever I've sought out, thought sought out a therapist, it's always been a woman always.
0: I was going to ask you if your new therapist was a woman.
1: Yeah. And and there have been times where I've had conversations with 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 men therapists, you know, at the outset to see kind of like, you know, what, what modalities they worked in. And if if what I was interested in was kind of their specialty, but they didn't rub me the wrong way. It just there, there definitely was at the few times I've talked with male therapists. I, I didn't it just felt like more of what I kind of expected. And it's not that I was looking for it. You know, I went into it thinking I, I hope they they don't come off this way, you know. And, and a lot of times you you do have to give somebody a chance because the way that, as you know, that they initially come off is not always the way that they normally are. It's because we all, many many people, of course, put on fronts initially, whether they realize it or not. And so maybe I didn't give them a chance. I'm sure there are some male therapists out there somewhere that I would that I that I could definitely work with. But no, I'm in this. I I'm this in the same situation as you. I still, you know. Would had felt more comfortable working with female with women therapists,
0: yeah. Yeah, one of my therapists, she recommended brain spotting to me, or said to like maybe check that um in terms of just getting into your body and and being still with it, which is something that I you know I have to fill space with, with space with my voice. <laughs> I mean, but that's why here I am. Uh, and and we both in that moment were like, I think if I'm going to do that. I want to try it with a man, like because I think it's a challenge. Like it scares me to do that, and that sort of feels like what? Well, what I'm doing? It's like okay, like okay. Hopefully, I can trust this person. But I I, I do remember the one time I well, my psychiatrist is male. Um, but I do remember I accidentally I was trying to find a psychiatrist, but I accidentally actually booked an appointment with another therapist, and I was like divulging my life and telling him all these things, and he was just like, "I'm not a psychiatrist." And not in a very nice way. And it was just like, it just reinforced my fear. I, I just feel like I would have uh, felt much more. I was just so embarrassed, so ashamed of like, because I was just so nervous and didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to get anxiety meds for the first time or not trying. Like I'm open to that now for 20 years. I didn't do that. And it was just like this first time, the guy's just like, you're an idiot, basically. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> you know it's that thing i i w- i wasted his time but like it was an honest mistake yeah. right,
1: exactly exactly yeah. and right it's tough because you know when you're the vulnerable one the person is the who's the the potential patient you know the last thing you want you know is somebody saying or doing something that is that is going to feel judgmental at all
0: absolutely and well i do a great job of imagining judgment whether it's there or not
1: so, uh, <laughs> I think I think, a, I think in this day and age a lot of people do. You're not alone in that, Andy.
0: Well, okay. So, we were sort of talking about how it's how we're more comfortable being vulnerable with women than men and why that is. And I was just also on the vulnerability front, it's slightly a segue to just crying in general because I've been thinking about it recently, even when I just like, even when I'm trying to cry recently, like knowing that it feels good and that I need it, it just isn't coming. Even when I'm alone and no one's there. And I was just wondering, what's your relationship with crying?
1: Sure. Yeah. Let me just say this before I forget what, and I'll I'll definitely (laughs) answer that relation. One of the things that I've been finding that has been helpful, for instance, for me, when I know that there's just a lot inside, you know, you you mentioned as well as I mentioned that, you know. The death of a very close friend in the past year, and and I do want to say, by the way, that I'm, I'm very sorry about that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm
1: really sorry to hear that. You're welcome. I, I I can only imagine you know how difficult it must be. One of the things that's been helping me, because I've had a difficult time accessing that too, is a lot of times what can help for that, and you can't force this, but but sometimes listening to music, watching movies, that will where you're kind of sublimating, you know, where you you're you're accessing. An emotional response that isn't about your own experience, but it still triggers up and helps you release, you know, some some of that some of that that kind of like suppressed emotion. And so, for instance, what you know, you talked about my relationship with crying. My relationship with crying has been one since my late twenties of of really um, not, you know, not going out of my way to look for excuses to cry, but but when it does happen to not be ashamed for it. And so the first time I really remember this, I was in my late twenties and I was coming back on a flight to Baltimore where I, you know, where I lived from Lake Tahoe with, with an old girlfriend and we'd been out there with her family. Cause they were all from California. So we're coming back from Lake Tahoe and I'm reading the novel, uh, a river, a river runs through it. Mm. And there was a great movie made about that, I think in the nineties. And I just completely just out of nowhere, I just, to start a bawling. It was just so, so powerful, the ending. I mean, it just, even if I read it today, I would still cry. It's just so, just so powerful and so beautiful and so tragic. And, and I just start crying. I hadn't cried in like 12 or 15 years at that point. I hadn't, you know, and-
0: Is this on the plane?
1: It's on the plane. And so my girlfriend at the time is just kind of looking out the window. She won't look at me. The poor guy next to me is like, is like I assume some businessman. Like, and he's like wearing it like a suit. He's got a suit jacket off, but he's got his like nice pants on and his tie and all that stuff. He's just like white knuckling, like looking forward. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like sitting there staring at him crying, but I see him out of my eye. And he's just going like this. And and people, of course, all around the plane are, are looking at me. This, you know, the the attendant comes over and asks me if I'm okay. And it hadn't happened, like I said, since I was probably God at that time. I think. I hadn't probably cried since, since I was 11 or 12. And I just kind of, I went with it, you know? I didn't apologize. I didn't like sit there and, and try to stifle it. I just kind of went with it and just was like overcome with the emotion. You know, and I just, I kind of like, just like left my tears there, you know? Like I said, I wasn't like wiping anything away and, I just remember kind of thinking, and I, and I didn't know why at the time, but I, like, I wanted people, I wasn't going out of my way for it, but when people would kind of turn around to look at me, cause this was very strange to see this like young man crying, you know, I just, I kind of just looked at them. I didn't, I wasn't in a, like a chicken, like a staring match of chicken with them, but I, I thought I want them to see my tears. I didn't know why at the time, hmm. but we got off the plane and my girlfriend was silent the entire time and we were walking to get our bags and like, literally she just wouldn't talk to me. And she just, at one point is looking forward, just says, what was that all about on the plane? And and that was, our relationship was already kind of strained at that point. And that was when I realized that even though I was at the time too afraid to want the relationship to end, I also knew when she said that, "This is this is like probably the last nail in the coffin for me mm-hmm. emotionally. You know, and this often happens in relationships. We're very ambivalent, we're very torn. But that really was a nail in the coffin for me when she said that, because that really was part and parcel with who she had kind of presented herself as all along anyway. And after that, a couple of years later, I just, that, all that, that whole experience, I just was always going through it and just trying to like, trying to understand so much about it. And so after that, when tears would come, I just, I wouldn't try to suppress them as much as I had, you know, I wouldn't try to like fight things back. And I went with it. So I'd be in a movie theater, you know, and I would just kind of like, let it happen. You know, I mean, it's not like I was running up to people and saying, look at me. I'm, I'm a man crying. Look, you know, bear witness. You know, it's just like, if it, if it happened, it happened. But I was, I, I decided I'm not going to be ashamed of this. And that was the first stage for me of really learning how to liberate myself from the straitjacket. That was the first real uh, profound way that I felt like I was putting myself on this path, you know? And then it became other aspects of my identity. And then I started realizing I'd already kind of been in this path anyway. I just wasn't aware of it. And I just, it kind of was, this was the first really probably um, one, one of the big reckonings. There've been a few reckonings in my life with this kind of awareness about my need to really, create my own identity as a man. And this was one of those reckonings. But then fast forward, you know, I just lately, uh, I don't know, I just, you know, I've been through a lot the past couple of years with this one friend in particular, forgetting the pandemic, it's just this one friend in particular has just been, um, he developed this 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 rare form of dementia called frontotemporal dementia, very aggressive, they have no idea that they have it. And it was just an endless nightmare because there was nobody else in his life. And uh, most of his family has is, is, is been gone. He's got one remaining brother. They've been estranged. He wanted really nothing to do with him. And I've been the only person in this, in, this, in this friend's life, more or less, for about 30 years. And he, I had to step in and take over everything. And on top of it, it was just endless grief from him. And it was just it was it was absolutely brutal i i i for the first time in my life, you know, I just went through days feeling like I literally had just a millstone around my neck. Oh. you know it was just it was absolutely brutal and and he passed away last November, and he it was very tragic. I mean, he had choked on something in the assisted living facility, and oh. he was brain dead um and even that became a whole big protracted thing, and there was a, a huge sense of relief honestly, when he passed away, as sad as I was, but, but a lot of the emotion, I really just had to kind of suppress, you know, all that grief, all that struggle, all of it, because I just had to keep showing up, getting up every day, being a father, being a husband, you know, working my, my job, you know, you know, teaching full time, being a writer. I mean, all this had to keep going on, and I had to show up for him. And so, That was a real period for me over the past, I'd say, couple years where a lot of the emotion wasn't, wasn't just present. And I thought to myself, I hope I get to the point where through other ways, you know, other things, I can start to kind of purge this a little bit. So that's kind of where things are. Clearly, I've had a very kind of intentional relationship since my late 20s with crying because for anybody in this culture, even for women, you know, it's not really... Completely acceptable in a culture like ours, but it's more acceptable for women they they will support each other more with men it still is it still really is it still really is like a scarlet letter you know in many ways it's something that I don't feel any shame around um there have been times for instance where I've started to like you know get worked up and when I've been teaching you know and and I'll say to students, you know typically i don't apologize you know i'll just say this really moved me you know
0: that that's really. I mean, that's incredible, and, and and thank you for sharing. And uh, so sorry about your friend. That sounds like oh, thank you so much. To I mean, to carry and and the that repressing it in and holding it. I mean, that's a very masculine sort of thing too, right? That like. Oh, yeah, we have to, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying, it's a human thing. I know. It's a human thing, probably, too. But, yeah, you, you have so many other responsibilities, so you you come last, right, in terms of that. Yeah. I, I think that was, that's been me a, a lot, too. And I think, I don't know, this might be dramatic just for the, just because I like to be traumatic, but, like, I don't know if I would be... Here, doing this podcast, if it wasn't for like a a breakdown that I had a couple years ago, during the beginning, or sort of like in the peak of the pandemic in 2020, I, I just had all this anxiety and all this fear and all this like, I was so hard on myself because it felt like I was needed to answer, like I needed to help. I didn't know how to help and I was just so lost and in a job I didn't care about. And I just b- broke down and, and, and Lily was there and, and came and it was just like, I'd never sort of lost control of my body before and didn't like in terms of not knowing when it would stop and it just came and, and it was just like this avalanche. And I think I, I was crying. Crying has come a l- little bit easier since then, but like, I couldn't tell you, The last time I, well, certainly cried like that, I have no idea, but that to me was a turning point. I I, like similar to the story, like of yours, where it just sort of felt like, oh, that was so healthy of me and so really necessary. And it felt so good afterwards. And I mean, it was sort of a painful, like out of body experience. I don't, I don't know. It was like a transformation, really, Um, a purging, like you said. and I. But yeah, I, I, it's still so wired in me that it's like if I, it's it's still hard, you know. Movies for me, I, I it's like I think that's why I love movies because I, I will get emotional. But it's still, uh, it kind of stops at eyes watering, and like my eyes will will water all day, <laughs> but like that's sort of where it stops. But. Yeah, sorry, I think you were going to jump in.
1: No, 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 not at all. Thank you very much for sharing that, Andy. Yeah. Your own story. You know, it's, it's. I think about this, all, not a lot, but I've thought about it quite a bit. It's so interesting how crying is probably more than any other physiological sp- response from the body. It's probably the one that we, by far and away, heap the most the most contempt and judgment on. And, you know if you, if you went, you know, even on just a Wikipedia or just look something up about what happens when, when we cry, you know, it, it's, it's this physiological response, you know, that, that, you know, of course it happens, you know, from cutting onions and it happens from, you know, from other things. Sometimes we may get bumped by a ball or something. And it's gotta be the physiological response of the body that we heap the most social construct on. And it's, and it's always a very, of course, very negative. It's always judgmental. It's interesting because, I mean, you know, crying, I don't, I don't know, you know, how you felt afterwards when you had that breakdown. Well, let me, let me ask you, I mean, did you in any way feel lighter or better in any way, like emotionally?
0: I, I did. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know if it was immediate. It was sort of like, uh, I, I was, I think I was still in bed for a bit after just sort of like, it's almost like it was an aftershock or sort of an after wave sort of like, whoa, what was that? And there was there was a little bit of embarrassment, but I don't think, not necessarily shame. I think that, like, Lily came and was just there with, like, a hand on me, and that was one of the, like, I'll, I'll remember that moment forever and that feeling of being held and being... And I think in our relationship, it's often been the other way around, and it was really nice to be like, oh, okay, I she can carry this too, you know? And that is sometimes why I will never let those things out, because it's like, oh, I don't... I don't want to put this on someone else to deal with. You know, this is my this is my shit.
1: That's that's such a typical kind of right. like of masculine kind of expectation. Absolutely, you know? <laughs> and and a lot of it's funny because a lot of guys think, well, you know, I'm more gender fluid than that, and and I don't really buy into a lot of this stuff, and so and that's so much bullshit because so. Many guys I've interviewed, you know, for my book and, and even after my book, you know, who are gay or, or have, you know, or, or maybe, you know, a different, a different kind of gender identity, or they are, they're, they're hetero, but they're, you know, they're more kind of fluid in their, in their masculinity. There's so, there's certain core things that so many guys still cling to and they're, and they're sometimes aware of it and sometimes they're not aware of it, but this is one of them. It's the expectation, you know, around our emotional lives, you know, that, that these are things we should be able to work through. These are things we sh- you know, that we, we should be showing up, you know, if we're straight, for instance, we should be showing up more for the women when they do this than, than they should have to for us. This is the ba- this is the, this is the way that I want to show up for my partner. And it's preposterous, but, you know, I will tell you right now. That you know if if I went to my wife as much as she comes to me for the for the same kind of things, I mean, I know that she wouldn't feel totally comfortable with it. to be honest, she wouldn't. and 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 that's not anything that I wouldn't say with her sitting right next to me. She might disagree with me, but I, I know that that there are a lot of things that she will come to me about being very upset. and i'm, I'm t- I understand completely. But if I went to her with the same kind of reaction, I know that she probably would, would would feel a little uncomfortable at times if I did it as much.
0: Yeah, well, and I imagine that's because that's how she's been trained, right? Or th- this is new, this is different. And, and, and that that made me think of um, telling like, a, like I basically sort of remembered my first kiss. And, and it was actually with a boy and it was when we were playing and, and it was a really emotional experience. And I, and I did cry telling this to, to my partner. And she was really uncomfortable and and sort of said it, but she was also just like, and I'm like, I'm, Hey, I'm pouring my guts out here. Like, this is like, I don't even, didn't even know this was coming. Like, Holy crap. This is, it's like, I unlocked a thing. It was a monologue I'd done the show. And she was just like, but into her credit, she was like, Oh yeah, it's just, I'm not used to this. Like, this isn't something that I can do. And she sort of apologized, even though I don't think she needed to apologize. But it was more just like, we both noticed that moment. And then, you know, I think, I don't know if that was, that must have been before. I don't know where that happened, like in the timeline. But like, the breakdown one was such that it was like, It was just like all hands on deck. There was no question of like, that would have been devastating if she had just been like, what are you doing? (laughs) You you know? The Mariners lose again? You know, like.
1: (laughs) But it's it's true. There there are a lot of ways that a lot of enlightened and very thoughtful men still cling to these things. And part of the reason is because, for instance, if they're straight, they don't necessarily have a lot of women in their lives telling them, no, it's okay to be this woman. There are a lot of therapists I've talked to for, for my book. And since then, who work with a lot of male clients, you know, there's a pattern. They've often said to me when I've asked them, you know, that they'll try to get a lot of the men they work with to, uh, to open up more in their marriages. And it goes really well in the very beginning, but then there's a very common pattern that after it happens where these, these men will, will be more vulnerable and give the wives what they're asking for and open up with them beyond the first time or two they, they get met with more judgment, the more they do it. Mm. And, and and that's profound as hell. I mean, I mean, that speaks to what you said about most women, in, you know, are still being socialized in a way to think of what masculinity should, should mean. So much of it is this idea of, well, we know that we don't want men to, you know, to, with sexual assault, we don't want them to, you know, to beat women, but, you know, we really have not, and this is one of the things I'm trying to do with my book. I re, one of the things I always said I was trying to do in my book is move the conversation forward. And, and that is not a place that a lot of people are really ready for it to go, the kind of things we're talking about right now. Because there are even not a lot of women, a lot of progressive women who really want to think of, you know, appreciating men who do this. Because yeah, yeah, they may not they don't, they don't want men to be ogres, but when they're faced with men, who are behaving in ways like what we're talking about, a lot of them get very uncomfortable. And and so they're stuck in a very limiting way of seeing men, and they're perpetuating a lot of the stereotypes, which means, honestly, for those of us that are trying to break free of that, you know, and my whole thing is about healthy masculinity and about trying to encourage men, you know, to dig down, you know, to have the courage to do this kind of work. It means it's gotta be met in a way that it's going to feel safe that they can do it because you were talking about you know being with the psychiatrist and how quickly you felt rejected and you kind of in a way kind of shut down after that that's that's the experience for for so many men when they when they are with partners and they do open up and if it's met with rejection and I don't mean open judgment or scorn I mean that of course but even just pulling away for a guy immediately who's made, that feels like a a massive quantum leap. It's going to be, I knew I should have done that. I knew I should have done that. I'm not doing it again. That is how boys and young men think when they do make themselves vulnerable and it's met in a way that feels unsafe to them. Mm -hmm. And so we really haven't caught up, you know, with girls and women we've done and continue to do an amazing job, you know, and I say this in the book, we we have made so many inroads and so much progress in terms of saying to girls and women, here's the rack, here's the wardrobe rack. Take anything you want off of it. You will be supported, yeah, as well they should be, and you can wear it any way you want. With boys, we still say to them, figuratively speaking, here are the here are the styles you can wear. Here's gray, brown, black, and and maybe some maybe some other assorted kind of you know winter you know w- you know winter dismal color. But that's basically what we say. This is the wardrobe you have to work with, m- metaphorically speaking. I, quite literally, too, if you look in men's catalogs. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's the, we, we're still working for that wardrobe. We, we absolutely positively are. And so why would any, say, boy or man extend himself and make himself that vulnerable, which is not something most of us are used to doing, when they're going to be met with some degree of rejection? And so that, that's not progress. You know that's not progress. It's it's, and this is a conversation that that I do bring up in the book. I've tried to get you know op-ed editors on board with it, with this kind of stuff, and I'm not surprised that they're really not interested in it. This 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 is not something that to them, you know, is is part of where we are right now, and it's not part of the conversation that really is important. I'm going to keep pressing it, you know, to the extent that I'm able, but these this is an important conversation. It really is. Because one of the things that is a pattern in heterosexual relationships is women saying, I want you to open up to me. I want you to, you know, I want this intimacy, but so often, and there, and there's, you know, there's other people that have written about this. It's not just me saying this. So often when they do beyond the first time or two, it's, it, it's often a form of rejection that they meet. So my feeling has always been, cause I've always been a scrapper, you know, this is, this is the path I'm on. You're going to have to l- learn to grow with me on this. That's basically what I said to my wife. Yeah. Basically what I said, when my wife and I got serious, I said, I was already at a place in my life where I have said, you know, different forms of vulnerability are really important to me because I want deep intimacy. And this, this is the hallmark of deep intimacy. You need this. And I said, I've got to know if this is something you're going to be okay to work on with me on it wasn't just, you know, I mean, it wasn't just like I was already there, but I knew this was important for both of us. It's work. It's absolute
0: work. Absolutely. And it's inspiring work, too. And it's also like kind of the work we all need to do. And and if we can do it with our partners, we can then do it with our friends. We can do it. I mean, it's often easier with strangers sometimes, but but it's a muscle. It's practice. And that, I mean, in a way, that's what this is. I'm practicing every time and trying to learn. And I really, I've learned a lot from you already. And, and also from just this conversation and and you asked me sort of at the top, like why it was hard to ask someone to be a mentor. And I think it connects to the crying. It connects to the feeling of, well, if you ask for something like that, you're asking for help. You're appearing vulnerable. You're appearing like, I am not enough. I am weak. I'm the crying person. Maybe I'm the, the last of the bench, you know? And I think that's, not true, but that's uh, that's the way it feels. That's why it's hard. And it's also, it's like, if I actually ask that question and, and you say no, or anyone said no, it's like, fuck, well, that sucks, you know? I know. And so it's more, it's also sort of, I think it's more like, I just want to be your friend and colleague and whatever that is. And I think that's already happening. And just by us doing this, so I just wanted to say, I really appreciate you for, for being here.
1: Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you very much. And I just want you to know, I love and appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, you're welcome. And and thank you. And, And I feel like, uh, we'll meet again soon. I hope. I'm so grateful to Andrew for joining me and trusting me and to you all for listening to our conversation. You can find the soundtrack to Andrew's life and all others on the Naked Man Spotify page. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell all your friends and mentors. And if you like what I'm doing, if you like what you're hearing, do me a favor. Please join my Patreon. Join this community and be part of the conversation. Be empowered in where this show goes from here. The Patreon link is in the description. And if you can't afford to donate, Not to worry, reach out and I'll invite you to our Discord. The more the merrier. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NakedManPod and don't hesitate to reach out to us at NakedManPod at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts and feelings you'd like to share, like about your experience with male role models, call and leave a message at the Naked Man phone line at 747-231-7120. Next time on the Naked Man Podcast, we're returning to monologue mania. And in the meantime, as my dad always says... Be sweet. This episode of the Naked Man podcast was conceived by Andy Green in collaboration with Andrew Reiner. This episode would not have happened without the help of Adriana Isabel, Robert Panico, Fred Beckley, and Marissa Flaxbart. The Naked Man is a podcast hosted, created, and produced by me, Andy Green. All music was composed by Robert Panico, and all graphics were created by Christopher Miles.